said, wow, there's all these new, new people. Like, cause I just was, she said, there's so many new people. I said, well, yeah, I wonder how, why, how they came to this retreat. And she said, well, joy, you know, <laughs> not suffering. Uh, <laughs> um, there's no way around the, the inevitable challenges of life. So uh, don't think that you're just going to be skipping around and, uh, you know, singing la-la-la to yourself. Although if that happens, you know, fine. No, I, I say be with it. Uh, it'll be a full-on experience, but with the um, emphasis, the inclination towards what the Buddha called um, maintaining and increasing wholesome states. Um, and we'll have the full-on sitting and walking and sitting and walking schedule. The afternoon, one other tweak is that in the afternoon we'll have some additional um, teachings, uh, some experiential exercises, but they'll be mostly um, uh, intrapersonal. So we're not going to have a lot of, um, of talking amongst, amongst you. But there is some information uh, that I um, and we want to share with you uh, around these principles of, of awakening joy. Um, and um, I'll, I want to say a little bit about, about that uh, tonight. Uh, first, I'll, I'll read from the Buddha so you... Don't think I'm just making this stuff up. This is uh, from the Dhammapada. The Buddha says, Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, and know the sweet joy of the way. When we teach the, um, the retreats here, and, and they're, um, they're based on Buddhist philosophy, um, people hear some very profound, liberating teachings, the Four Noble Truths, which if you're not familiar there is suffering in life. There is a cause of suffering. There is an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end to suffering. Those truths have freed the hearts of many, many people for thousands of years. However, there can be an emphasis on suffering, and sometimes people can miss out that the Buddha was called the happy one and said, go for the highest happiness and all the other true happinesses and well-being will follow you. Sometimes this can get lost. And for myself, when I first got into the teachings, I had a very long, what's called honeymoon period where Mindfulness was the answer, and all I had to do was keep practicing, and I was just nourished in, in such a profound way. 
At some point, though, I became um, very serious about my practice, dead serious about my practice, with emphasis on the dead. And I um, experienced what some people can experience. I, I lost my joy for a while. Um, and it was uh, a, a very um, um, important, profound, challenging period uh, that finally I came out of and reclaimed my joy because there is a part of me that just has always, like I said with uh, Deborah and I, that has always loved life and seen the good in life. Uh, but when I uh, realized that I had somehow mm, uh, made a, a, a distortion in the teachings, I wanted to look carefully and see, well, what did the Buddha actually say about happiness and about joy? And I went back and I found some very, very profound teachings that I uh, found very helpful for myself and was that much more inspired to share with others. So. I'm going to and we're going to share the teachings that, we, that have meant so much to us but with this, um, this slightly different emphasis. And I wasn't alone in this, um, in this dilemma. Uh, anybody here has, has gotten very serious about practice? I know some people are, many people are relatively new but anyone who's, who's gotten at times serious about their practice, maybe overly serious. You're just uh, okay, and the rest of you are new, so you'll be wondering, okay, what am I going to get into here? But, but this is um, this is from uh, a very highly respected monk, one of the the senior Western monk in Theravadan Buddhism. Theravada is the the kind of um, uh, lineage and tradition that uh, that Spirit Rock comes out of. The teachings of the elders that is the, the basic teachings of the Buddha from, that's taught now in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand primarily. And this is uh, Ajahn Sumedho on this topic. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality, the three, what are called the three characteristics of reality but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. The Dalai Lama, who I'm sure 
most all of us have been inspired by. Um, has a wonderful book, The Art of Happiness. And the first line in that book is, the purpose of life is to be happy. Just take that in. The purpose of life is to be happy. It's a very powerful statement. The opening line to the book, the purpose of your life is to be happy. What can that mean? He's pointing to if you find where true happiness lies, then all of the gifts that you've been given in this lifetime, all of the goodness, all of the love, all of the wisdom and clarity that you've been gifted with will shine through unobstructedly. So this is not a selfish or self-indulgent experience. This is one of the great things that you can give, not just to yourself, but to everyone in your life and to put a little bit more happiness and joy and well-being into the world. In the teachings, in the Buddha's teachings, there are number of different expressions that point to this quality that I'm calling joy, but really at the heart of it is well-being, true well-being. And so there are many flavors of this well-being. And if the word joy trips you up, sometimes people hear awakening joy, give me a break, I'll just take not being miserable, thank you. you know. Don't let joy trip you up, whether it's contentment or ease or peace or heartfulness or love. All of the the qualities of openness, what are called wholesome states in the teachings, this is what we're cultivating. And the Buddha said one of the main principles that this is based on, he says, notice the different states that are states of contraction, that are states of suffering, that in Pali the word akusala or unwholesome is used. Notice those states like greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, fear, judgment, all of those, you probably are familiar with some of those, those are states of contraction where they're unpleasant and states of suffering and they lead to more suffering unless you learn how to work with them. He says, when, he says try to avoid those states, but when they arise, learn how to overcome them. And we'll be exploring that as a, a central part of what we do because we are, we'll be going through probably many highs as well as many lows while you're here. That's part of life. So he says, that's how you deal with those unwholesome states. And then he says, there are many beautiful wholesome states like kindness, compassion, love, joy, um, patience, equanimity, peace, Those are called kusala, or wholesome states. And he says those states are both pleasant in the moment 
and lead to greater sa- senses of well-being, sense of well-being, that they're opening expansive states. And he says it's a good thing to cultivate those states and when they arise to maintain and increase those wholesome states. He says that's a good thing. But here's the tricky part. If you're having a wholesome state, it's easy for the mind to say, yeah, finally, bring it on. And as soon as you grasp at that wholesome state, as soon as you try to hold on to it, as soon as you say, oh, I want more, oh, I don't want it to go away, you've just turned it into an unwholesome state. So I gotta be careful here. But there are ways to maintain and increase those wholesome states, which is what we'll be particularly including in the instructions in the meditation, because there's bound to be one or two wholesome moments while you're here, maybe even more. Actually, as you start looking for them, you find them more. That's often what happens, because we have what is called a confirmation bias, and we will find what we look for. Sometimes people come to retreat saying, I know I'm going to be having a lot of suffering this week. Yep, there it is. Yeah, there it is. There it is. And because, not only because we look for it, because suffering is part of life, but the more you tune into it, the more your brain picks up what it is looking for. And so in neuroscience, this is well known, this phenomenon called the confirmation bias, where you find what you look for. And we are wired up to look for what can go wrong. This is not a bad thing. It's a kind of species survival mechanism. We have this almond-shaped cluster in our, of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And when we're stressed, it's that much more tuned into what can go wrong because there's a contraction in the mind and contraction leads to a a negative uh, thinking. So it takes some practice to look for what can go right. Thich Nhat Hanh, a wonderful uh, uh, Vietnamese master, says he has this instruction, Notice what's not wrong. Oh, last week I had a toothache. I don't have a toothache now. How wonderful. To be on the lookout for what's not wrong takes some practice and we'll be um, encouraging that along with opening up to the whole deal. You can't just be looking for all the good uh, all the time because there's some there's inevitability. The Buddha's first truth is there's suffering in life. And the, the less we're afraid to see that and open up to it, the more we can uh, work skillfully with it. But we don't want to forget to notice what's right and what's good. The, uh, another teaching that this whole um, approach is based on, besides cultivating states, wholesome states, is there is a a feeling of uplift or gladness that accompanies a wholesome state. And the Buddha said, check it out. 
Don't miss it. For instance, as I'm talking right now, I'll just stop for a few moments. Close your eyes and bring to mind something that brings you joy. Maybe some activity or some uh, situation. And as you remember the last time, put yourself right there. Have an image and a connection. And as you remember, tune into how it feels right now in your body, in your mind and in your heart. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. Let me ask, what did you notice? Just a, there's no one right answer, just a, a couple of comments. How, what did it feel like in there? Anyone? Yeah? S- say again? A pure, energy, a, pure energy of light. a pure energy of light. Yes, what else? I I smiling. smiling, yeah. What else? Sense of surprise, yeah. Anything else? Yes. Relaxing peace. Relaxing peace, yeah. So you could f- sense this openness, this expansion. And the Buddha said there is this, what he called a, the gladness. That's the word that's translated. A gladness connected with what is wholesome. And he said, in one discourse he said, that gladness connected with what is wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. He said, that gladness, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration and delight in the truth. And he said, pay attention to it. So this is one thing that we'll be doing here when there happen to be moments of gladness, to just practice, not just knowing, oh, feeling pretty good now, but to feel what it feels like to feel good. That's that extra little step. Oh, this is the experience of feeling good. And that deepens the neural pathways of well-being. It takes some practice, but it really works. So noticing wholesome states when they arise and letting ourselves uh, just really feel that, that gladness. <clears throat> the Buddha, in, in this in one example, he says, if you're in the middle of a generous act and you're just feeling generosity, he says, oh, think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous right now. This is his recommendation. Oh, I'm being generous now. And he says, just notice how good it feels to be generous. So this is another thing that we'll be, we'll be doing. And then one more principle that I'll, uh, I'll share right now is that as you practice over time, the more you practice something, the better you get at it in one discourse, famous discourse by the Buddha, he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So if you frequently think and ponder upon how 
the world is going down the tubes and everybody around you is going to disappoint you and things aren't going to work out, that becomes your inclination of mind. If you frequently think and ponder upon how amazing it is to be alive, how blessed I am, how there's some goodness in just about everyone that wants to come out. That becomes your inclination of mind. And the more you look for it, the more you find it. So this is some of the attitudes and principles that we'll be bringing on to the the basic practice. Now I just want to say just a couple of more words. And that is, you will get just the retreat you need. Don't try to be joyful. People do the Awakening Joy course and they say, I'm trying so hard to be joyful and it's just not working. Forget it. You're going to set yourself up for a big problem. The idea is to be just where you are, authentically connected to your experience. That authenticity and that connection held in a wise heart leads to an aliveness. Whether or not it's a delicious moment or a challenging moment, we are learning to open our heart to every moment. And the more we can learn to do that, the more we are truly connected with life. So you don't have to plan on any agenda trying to make anything happen. All you need to do is show up as best you can with a very kind, interested, and relaxed awareness. And we'll talk more about about that. But just having that attitude of interest and ease and kindness and you will naturally be opening up to all parts of your experience and learn in the process to awaken whatever aliveness and well-being is there. Truly happy people are not happy all the time. If somebody says, I'm happy all the time, they're probably living in denial. We have loss, we have grief, we have sadness, we have all the parts of us that make us human that are challenging. And truly happy people, or people who have somehow understood the um, uh, navigating through life in a healthy way, feel the losses deeply, but aren't overwhelmed by them, and learn how to work and navigate through them and process them wisely and don't miss all the good in their life. So this is what we're going to be cultivating, being here with the whole show. And what we're here to do is to support you as best we can in this. Uh, We'll have instructions, we'll have um, talks each evening, uh, we'll have interviews both in groups and some individual uh, sign-ups. We'll um, have some 
other experiential exercises. We're here, excuse me, to create the conditions for you to go inside and see that you have inside of you all that you need for true happiness. So this is one thing that you can think of this as is a process of making friends with yourself. Truly the good news to find out who's in there. Sometimes it's said self-awareness is usually bad news, but that's not so. I think the true self-awareness is really good news, and we're going to go to those deeper levels and uh, um, open up to the whole show of life and in the process, um, hopefully awaken the joy that's uh, who you really are. So I'll stop here for now and um, turn it over to Deborah. Thank you, James. It's always a joy to hear you talk about joy. Uh, We're aware you've been sitting for an hour, so we're going to not take a break, but have a little, like, one-minute silent movement experience, which means we're going to be aware of our body sensations while we very slowly, meaning we're aware, come to standing. And just see, can I stay aware of my knees, my legs? Whoops, did we pop up? Did we miss that moment? No judgment, we just... Say, oh, we start to be able to be present. And then just take several seconds here and stretch your legs and your back. And you might notice, especially if the movement gets slow, if your awareness is in your body as you're stretching, you might notice there's what we could call a pleasant subtle, pleasant experience enjoy let yourself enjoy this moment of pleasant stretch of open And then let's just take our seat. So, briefly, I want to welcome everybody to Spirit Rock. If you don't know this yet, you will find out some point during this week, maybe many moments, you are so fortunate to be here this beautiful week at this extraordinary place with absolutely nothing to do. I know that's hard to believe, except be present, quiet your mind, open your heart, learn about joy. This is an incredible, precious, rare thing. And uh, notice how you might spend several of your moments every in sitting, like thinking, I've got to tell my friends, or what am I going to do when I get home? But we want to so encourage you to just keep returning because suddenly this retreat will be over and there are so many rich, beautiful 
moments and deers and bugs and flowers and grasses and stars and moons. There's so much beauty here to appreciate and enjoy. So um, really, really sincerely am happy to be here. I happen to love this team. I love this topic. I love this place. So there is nowhere I would rather be this week. Um, it's, it's really an honor and a pleasure to get to share about awakening the heart and awakening joy. It's a beautiful thing to get to do. So I want to um, welcome everybody, meaning all the differences. There's different races and cultures and classes and ages there's different gender preferences. There's so much diversity here. And this diversity enriches all of us. There's a big diversity in how some people are brand new beginning meditators and some people are very, very experienced. This, is, as James mentioned, having this blend in the room is good for everybody. Keeps it very fresh and very alive. So we... We really welcome the diversity here. And about joy, I just want to say that no matter what your story is, you know, the one about the wounds and the traumas and the, that one, you know that story. This joy, this well-being that we're talking about this week, isn't taken away because of that history. The very essence of our true nature, part of that is natural joy and ease. Part of that is love and compassion. It's who we are at the essence. It, yes, it does get buried. It gets hidden. It gets covered for sure. And so we come on retreat. We come to practice to learn how do we unbury this? How do we take it out from hiding and let this light that's inside of every heart, every one of us has a light in our heart and how do we let it shine? So that's what we're up to here this week. Um, So at the beginning of gatherings of Dharma since the time of the Buddha, There's a very simple ritual that's been done or ceremony. It's called taking refuge. So some of you have done it, but the majority of you have not done it. I'm just going to say just a, we're going to do a very short and simple version of this. So we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So when we say the Buddha, some here might take refuge in the actual historical man who really did live an extraordinary life and has managed to inspire, you know, 2,500 years worth of awakening. And it's a perfectly wonderful thing to take refuge in that individual. There's the translation of the word Buddha means the one who is awake. And that one who is awake is in every one of us. It's our deepest nature. And the one who is awake is the, our true nature or our, the Buddha within each of us. 
So when we take refuge in the Buddha, at a very deep level, we're taking refuge in that deepest truth in ourself, who is awake, who's, who's dragging us away from the, all the projects and everything, saying, come on, let's go sit down. Let's go to Spirit Rock. Let's, let's connect with what matters, the one who is awake. So that's the Buddha. The Dharma is the word, that word means a lot of different things, but one of the things it means is the teachings, the, the teachings of the Buddha. But again, on another level, those teachings and the word Dharma really is about the truth of the way it is. And we take refuge in the teachings, and the teachings are about the truth. We take refuge in the way it is. And finally, the Sangha means the community. The uh, Sangha, the, the, the group of practitioners, not just this group, which is you're going to discover without talking to them, without looking at them, you'll find out, wow, there is a power in us coming in and being on time and sitting together. Uh, and when we, when we leave the hall and we all come back, there, there's a growing a refuge and you begin to feel it with total strangers. So the Sangha is also the, the community of all the people who have awakened throughout the ages. So we're going to do such a simple little um, ceremony. So... Um, you can open or close your eyes. I'll say this phrase, and you simply say it back out loud if you wish. By the way, this isn't a cult. (laughs) You don't have to repeat the words if they're not connecting for you, but this is an invitation. It's an opportunity. I take refuge in the Buddha. And let that resonate for a moment. And there may be people here who don't quite, you know, that word may not be the word, but there may be someone or something, maybe a teacher. Christ or Amici or, or some other force that you really do take refuge in. So silently let yourself say that and know what you're deeply taking refuge in. Then we go to the next one. I take refuge in the Dharma. And feel that, how it is to take refuge in the teachings of the truth. I take refuge. It's as though I leave the hurricane, the storm of the world, and the pulls and pushes, and I take refuge in the safe place which is the truth of the way things are. And finally, I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in 
And then feel that, let that resonate for a moment. And even notice the possibility of enjoying that moment. Oh, I'm here with others. We're together. We're taking refuge together as a community. There's something beautiful about that to notice, to receive, to appreciate. Then we bow. We've taken refuge. While I'm pouring water, I'd like to also add my warm welcome to all of you and how happy I am to be here, how happy I am for you to be able to have this training period, this practice period that is so rare and and does reflect so much um, so much effort and that it might have taken for you to get here, and a lot of purity of heart. And, um, and what we do here is we try to enhance the, the purity of our, um, our thoughts, our words, our actions, uh, so that they, they bring us joy, they bring us happiness. And uh, so I'm just happy that you can do that because it is not um, one of the beautiful things about the the Buddha's teaching is it is they remind us that we are uh, we are trainable that we are not just stuck with what was offered we were definitely given these what are sometimes called these uh, precious this precious human birth these amazing bodies the amazing capacity to see and to hear and to smell and to taste and to think so we're given this equipment that use that word that James used but it really depends on what we do with it and one one beautiful teaching from the Tibetan teacher said if you want to understand your past look at your present condition it's not an accident all the conditions that led you to be here to and many of them of course are non-personal but many are are the personal uh, words the personal thoughts, the personal actions. So part of our practice here is to act in a way, to practice acting in a way that brings gladness, that brings joy. And especially if we are to be true to those three refuges that Deborah just shared, the Buddha, that capacity to be, that, uh, that 
intrinsic wakefulness in us, the dharma, just the truth of the way things are. The sangha, it's the, this community, it's the third, the third place that we go to for support. But not only do we go to the sangha for support, we, in knowing that others here are, are relying on the support of the sangha, we offer support. We commit to being together because this being together in quietness, in silence, uh, is a, it's an unbinding process. It's a peeling process. It's, a, uh, it's an opening. And it's a beautiful thing. We have a lot of confidence sitting up here. We've seen what happens. People come to retreats very contracted, uh, very much um, affected by all of the sights and sounds and smells, the impinging of our senses that happen every day. We come tight and we become we come defended because people are not always acting wisely in our lives and acting kindly uh, with the best of intentions. And so we, if we truly want to feel what it's like to be open, we have to have a field or a community that feels safe. And that safety is provided by our commitment, our agreement to live together in harmony. And traditionally, we, we commit to those, we agree to have a reverence for each living being here. Not just the living meditators, but also the insects, the, the birds, the, the deer, the turkeys, that we commit to a reverence for every life form here and, not to, and commit to not harming any of it. And that is uh, one of the main causes of happiness in this world is being one who practices non-harming. We'll talk about more, that more as we go along in the retreat. But there is a joy that comes from, from knowing that you're not causing any harm. And then not having to think about the harm that you didn't cause. <laughs> and then thinking about the, the harm that you won't cause. So we first commit to having a reverence for life. Traditionally, it's to commit not to kill any living being. Here, we just want to respect our, our life form, respect your body, respect your... Each, uh, each other's body. So we also commit or agree to, uh, to refrain from um, taking anything that is not offered, which means not, traditionally it's not stealing. It means respecting as another act of generosity and support, respecting each person's property so they can they can feel safe with you. You can feel safe with your stuff. And, but it's also a practice of gentle renunciation of our excessive need to acquire. So it's a commitment to simplicity, to the joy that comes from simplicity. Just notice the moments when you don't want anything. When you are not looking ahead to get something or looking back at what you lost or that you're separated from. 
these simple moments when we're not wanting anything, there's a, a natural peace and ease that opens us to the natural peace and ease of our nature. And it's not something we have to create. It's something that is available to us. But part of that, part of the counteracting the, the acquisitive, the, the greed in the mind is to make a commitment, even if that comes up, wanting to take something that's not offered, that we work with that, we notice it, and we agree to live together uh, in simplicity and in respect and reverence for each other's property. The third, we agree to to practice um, harmonious, truthful, timely, useful speech whenever we are engaged in meetings or, I I guess, dyads and things like that? Maybe not. Maybe not. In in whatever way, there is some, whatever communication, whether it's with the staff or uh, with one of us, that we do that we do it harmoniously, truthfully, usefully, and uh, and we make a commitment to be non-harming in our speech. That's the in the times that we're speaking, but the most uh, profound offering that we make to each other is the commitment to refrain from talking much of the time. Commitment to what we call noble silence giving each person the gift of solitude. No one here will have to deal with you. (laughs) You will be, by committing to silence, providing someone the opportunity to completely drop into the openness of their hearts and their beings and whatever it is that shows up in their mind and body and be able to drop any identity of any role, any, any idea of who you should be here. Just, you can just drop it and come into contact with the simple experience of just what's always happening in every moment is very simple. There's just seeing, there's just hearing, there's just smelling, there's just tasting, there's just sensing. And there's, sometimes there's thinking. That's it. And being able to meet life in that, in that simplicity is so rare. And it's helpful if we're not having to engage on the level of personality as much as possible. So we commit to noble silence. And that means committing to moving beyond our roles with each other. So many of you may have come with, how many of you came with friends? So ideally, you would want to, in order to give, provide that gift of solitude, you would ideally want to, in some way, pretend that you don't know that person. Commit to not engaging in any way with that person that you came here with. How many have came with partners? Same. 
giving your partner the gift of not having to relate as a partner. Your friend as not having to relate as a friend, but to be able to give themselves entirely to just the silence of their being that is beyond any role and that we deprive ourselves of when we're of that capacity to touch that, that depth of our nature when we're engaged in our, what will continue to be our different roles in our life, but it's rare to step out of that. And then it's a wonderful thing to reconnect after, to find out what you projected on the other person when they didn't look at you. (laughs) Because we also encourage you that you don't seek contact through your eyes. That's another way that you give each other the gift of solitude, is that we don't, we don't, um, we, we try to create a field of solitude so that we, again, offer that gift of solitude to each other. So commitment to noble silence. And so if you need to say one last goodbye tonight, Do it right. Do it right now. <laughs> so commit to not killing any living being, reverence for life, not taking anything that is not offered, to noble silence. The fourth, all in the spirit of creating that opportunity for being alone together. We commit not to engage in any kind of flirting any kind of sexual activity, any kind of attempt to uh, get somebody's attention in a romantic or sexual way, and ideally to commit to not engaging in sexual fantasy in our mind intentionally. They may come. There is a, it, it, this is a fertile field for anything to come up. But we work with it by not intentionally extending it, but by just noticing it as this amazing display that that occurs in our hearts. But we commit not to um, engage in sexual activity, to use that amazing sexual energy that we have that brought us all into existence, uh, but use it and our vital energy for the purpose of awakening here, not to engage in any kind of... um, sexual contact. So we make the commitment to celibacy for the time of this retreat. And finally, uh, we, as James, as Deborah reminded us that this is, it's all about awakening uh, to this capacity for Uh, a well-being and a joy that is intrinsic to our nature that doesn't so much depend on conditions. It's natural to us that if we truly want to have that kind of, discover that intrinsic joy and enjoy it, we don't want to be uh, depending on any kind of external um, substance, drugs, alcohol, other stimulants like smartphones. <laughs> I consider that a you know, part of the commitment to 
refrain from intoxicants. Traditionally, it's to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to carelessness and heedlessness. So if um, we'd also invite you to agree to, uh, to not using your phones, not taking any drugs or alcohol. Now, that does not mean to refrain from taking whatever uh, prescription uh, drugs you, that your doctor may have given you that are also may have some effect on your mental health. So it's not to go cold turkey, but to, to, to the extent that you can, not to add any other substance, drug or alcohol, or smartphone. So typically, we, I'll repeat these things, but I've, I've, I'm more inclined to have you look around right now at those who you are, that you are um, asking for their support and those who you are offering support to by making these agreements, to look around and, say, and nod in agreement that I, I will refrain from killing, stealing, sex, speech, and intoxicants. And we might as well just say, everybody say yes out loud if you agree. Do you agree to all these? Yes. Thank you. So may these this uh, these agreements bring you a sense of safety uh, with yourself and safety with each other. So it's a little late, but we'd like to begin tonight just uh, letting all the words fade away, everything that you've heard up to this point, and let our formal retreat begin. We've already, in some ways, by making these, by doing the rituals, we've already set sail in a way. We've left, left the shore of our Acknowledge that we're leaving the, the, our daily life and we're entering into this very uh, precious period of, of more intensive practice. And this can be the beginning of our formal practice. So once again, we orient ourselves to just the fact that we are sitting in this room and that our life has come to this. The past has gone. And whatever happens next has not yet occurred. It's just an idea. And that you are here, and the way that you know that you are here is that you are aware. And just be aware of the fact that you are aware. And it's a given. So notice how effortless it is to be aware. And one of the ways that we can stay 
aware is to put our attention in the same location as our body, to let our mind or our attention sink into our body and our body fill our mind or fill our attention. So find your body and slowly begin to bring a kind attention to this body that has carried you. We mix in this practice kindness and attention or kindness and mindfulness, sometimes called kindfulness. And we don't just settle with the knowing that we that there is a, a body here, we try to feel it. And we move beneath the concept of body and we feel the direct experience of that, which is sensation. So feel the sensations that are felt when you your attention connects with the rear, your rear touching the cushion or the chair. Just hover there long enough to feel sensation. And then the same with your hands until you move beyond just the idea of hands to the, the felt sense. The same with your lips until there's just sensation. The same with the soft touch of your eyelids. And then sensing your whole body until you feel that direct experience of aliveness or vibration. Points of feeling. And just by bringing attention to your body, you may notice a a gentle stillness, a stilling. Just feel that stilling. And then notice the gentle movements that your body makes when you breathe. And how that happens naturally without any help. The air enters and leaves your nostrils, your chest or belly rises and falls. We feel that as sensation. We ride the waves of sensation, the waves of the breath. never letting our attention leave our physical experience.
and we let our attention connected to our body and breath guide us to a calm abiding. And we remain undistracted, connected to this experience as long as it lasts. Knowing that the body is breathing in, knowing the body is breathing out. Breath by breath, we sink into our physical experience. We stick to it. Just this moment, just this breath, When you drift off into fantasy, you won't know it until you wake up. But when you do wake up, relax. And in the service of remaining present, we anchor our attention again in our body and breath. Just this breath. 